The Help Show is a podcast dedicated to connecting individuals to mental health resources in the community. The Help Show is more than a podcast. It is a movement focused on change. Our objectives are to change the perception and stigma associated with mental health, encourage those with mental health disease to get help, foster access to mental health resources, and remove barriers to mental health resources, including those encountered in undeserved communities. We remain committed to supporting the mental health needs of the community during the COVID-19 pandemic. Though the world has changed dramatically in a short period of time, The Help Show is here to help and navigate through the changes and address your mental health needs. Seek help when needed. If distress impacts your daily life for several days or weeks, talk to a clergy member, counselor, or doctor, or contact SAMHSA Helpline at 1-800-985-5990. The crisis worker will work to ensure that you feel safe and help identify options and information about mental health services in your area. Your call is confidential and free. This podcast is sponsored by Good Coworking. Good Coworking is the first solar-powered co-working community in the world focused on cultivating profitable businesses that do right by the people plus the planet, all while keeping you safe in a beautiful plant-filled wellness center space. Get an address for your business, which comes with two daytime co-working days per month to get your meetings done, all for the quarterly cost of $150. Good Work have many membership options, from frequent flyer to office rental, So let Good Coworking help you find just the right space to help you balance your life and work. Located in Dallas, Texas, just south of Deep Ellum. Check out goodcoworking.co and tell them The Help Show sent you. This month, The Help Show has taken a closer look at women athletes and their mental health in sports. Women's sports have come a long way, but we're still pushing for equality. Yes, we're still facing the pay gap, and yes, there's still discrimination, But now more than ever, we can make a change. Yes, we can do it. Today's special guest is Dr. Erica Forrest. Dr. Erica Forrest is a licensed psychologist specializing in sports psychology, working with adolescent collegiate professional and elite athletes. In her private practice, she is dedicated to providing counseling service to individual athletes and teams in the community. Dr. Forrest is nationally qualified as a certified mental performance consultant with the Association for Applied Sports Psychology and is registered sports psychologist with the United States Olympic Committee. She is currently serves as the head of Athletes Counseling Service in Athletes at Georgetown University. She has served as a team sports psychologist for teams such as the Dallas Wings of the WNBA. Dr. Forrest, um, I want to start the question, the the main question, how does mental health affect women and athletes? Sure. I mean, I think even broadening that just, you know, mental health of athletes in general, you know, and, and kind of narrowing it down to our female athletes in particular. You know, I think athletes are human beings. And so when we look at the big picture, you know, throughout the United States, we can look at the statistics where one in five adults will experience some kind of mental health concern. Um, And and this is including our athlete population. Um, You know, so when we look at women in general, you know, women do show sometimes that they may have higher rates of things like anxiety and depression. But I think as as a female athlete in sport, um, 
there are some unique challenges that women face. You know, you mentioned a few of them, just kind of noting some of the statistics that you went through. You know, but I think for for women in sport, they're constantly, you know, battling sort of um, pressures, such as what they should look like as a female athlete in sort of society's ideals of the thin beauty ideal, but balancing that as, as a female athlete. Um, there's training concerns that, that women can be particularly susceptible to two it's two which is you know different energy deficiency type concerns that affects their performance and can put them at risk for injury um and then you know sexism discrimination you know being objectified in terms of you know how they dress and how you speak and what you look like because you're a woman a woman in sport and so all of those concerns combined with what we as human beings have in our day-to-day life of just pressure to perform and family and all these other things, you know, I think that's a lot for an individual to carry. So I think, you know, women in sport, you know, really have some unique challenges that can um, interfere with performance and, you know, get in the way of the goals that they want. So kind of having a support system and ways to work through that is super important. I was wondering in your, your opinion, how does playing competitive sports affect a woman's mental health? I mean, is it a positive thing? Is it a neutral thing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the individual. You know, I I think for, you know, many athletes, certainly as they get to the college level and some of the more elite levels of competition, their whole identity is wrapped up in being an athlete, good or bad, you know, because it takes so much time and dedication to their sport, they are really putting a lot of time into training and everything that they do is, is surrounds their sport. Um, if they have an injury and they're not able to compete in their sport, I think it's hard to figure out what to do that can take a toll on their mental health in general. You know, so when you think about, um, you know, some of the, some of those aspects, that can take away from their mental health. But for athletes who then are away because of injury, they'll say like, as soon as I get back, my mental health is improved because they'll talk about, um, you know, the fact that competition is what they look forward to. Being with their teammates is what they look forward to. And you see that a lot too, with some of our younger athletes, like kids join sport in general, because it's fun, you know? So I think that can really help their mental health. And, And as you're learning lessons in life of how to deal with winning and losing and being a good sport and make friends, that can be a great way to develop interpersonal skills and, and healthy self-concept um, if you're in the right environments. You know, at the end of the day, we want kids to play sport because we want them to learn about health and fitness. And we know that's important to some degree in life long term. So we want them to learn that. So I think on the one hand, there are many health benefits on, on the physical and the mental health side that can be achieved through participation in sport. But at the same time, I think it can take a toll where there are times where if athletes are having some of these these challenges come up where there is pressure to look a certain way, does that lead to disordered eating or or unhealthy practices? Um, Is that pressure leading to anxiety and depression? So there are certainly some positives and some negatives that can go along and how it affects your mental health in general. And it depends on the situation and, and the athlete in particular. So do you feel the mindset of a female athlete in sports is more different than a male athlete? Yeah, I mean, just in working with lots of different athletes of levels and ages, you know, I think they're all, you know, as as I see athletes get to higher levels, you know, the, the one commonality is that determination and perseverance. I think that is a part of athletes makeup in a way. 
Um, is their mindset different? You know, I think it might depend on what their given situation is. So I, I really think it depends. You know, male athletes are going to go through some of their own specific challenges as well. And how they decide they want to handle that is really up to them. And that's why a lot of athletes come in is because they don't know how to handle it. So if we can get through the barriers of seeking mental health support and, and getting through that stigma, when they come in, it's like, this is what's going on. Like, how do I get through that? And so I think that's pretty comparable. I mean, I see a lot of female athletes, but I see a lot of male athletes too. So I don't know if the mindset is, is, all that different, but their challenges can be different. So as a female athlete, if you're being objectified by a coach or having to live up to certain body image ideals, you know, I think their mindset in that situation obviously be very different if there's a male athlete who doesn't have those same pressures. So with being objectified, do you see more, of course you, you see more probably women being more objectified, but is there is it almost the same as male? Because I don't want to say, oh, only female. Right, right. Sure. No, male athletes can experience too, you know, and when I work with, you know, runners, you know, there's sometimes a misconception of um, if I'm thinner, I'll run faster. And that idea can come from, I've heard it from male athletes and female athletes. And so thinking about does how my body looks sideways impact my performance. And so, so misconceptions about that happen, I think, for both men and women. Um, in general, you know, and, and I'm only speaking anecdotally, I don't have statistics in front of me, but, you know, a lot of our female athletes, certainly in certain sports, so when we look at, um, you know, gymnastics and swim and dance, ballet, etc., um, those types of sports tend to um, lend themselves to more body image concerns. So I do see probably more female athletes with those types of concerns. I think on the other side too, when men experience those types of concerns, they may feel more shame about it and not want to talk about it. So that may be part of it too. For women, we talk about some of those pressures a little bit more easily. And maybe for men, you know, there's sort of the, the hesitancy about, well, will I be judged? No, I'm a male, I shouldn't be thinking about this. And I've had that conversation with some of my male athletes in the past. I was wondering as you get into more elite athletes, and I'm thinking about, you know, your really great college level athlete, your Olympic level athlete, um, especially that are female, do you notice a difference in the level of stressors, what's happening with those women versus the ones that are, I'm not going to call them average, but, you know, you're really good athlete that you may see. You know, so it's interesting, and, and I don't know what my first guess would be, but it, it, I, I see that as the, I see my athletes go up as to professional level and the Olympic level, that some of those pressures are improving in a way because the confidence has increased. So I'm seeing like they, they handle some of those pressures better. Whereas in my college athletes, you know, they're, you know, starting out as freshmen, typically 18 years old and, and kind of wondering how to deal with some of these newer pressures of being in a more competitive team and what the expectations are and what they should look like and perform as. And as my other athletes progress into these higher levels beyond college, they have some of that figured out or, or they've sort of worked through some of those issues, I guess, in college. Um, and so there is some resiliency. And I, I would say some of the bigger challenges though become having a good team of support at the higher level because you are really putting all your time and energy into your sport. So their athletic identity becomes so strong with their sport. You know, I have an athlete right now who's training 
um, and, and on her way as a triathlete, you know, to trials and competing. And, and for her, you know, her day is wrapped around her training and recovery plan every single day as a professional athlete. And, you know, she doesn't have time for many other things. And I think in a way that can take a toll, you know, lack of social connection, lack of other interests to decompress and manage stress that that can um, take a toll. So that's why like having people who are part of the team on the support side, your dietitians and your sports psychologists and your strength and conditioning, all of these people really help those athletes cope with those stressors. So I think the support system sort of lends itself to helping them through that a little bit more effectively. Hmm. The question was, I didn't write this question down, but that's okay. when you were talking about it, it's, you know, we, we just pretty, we're still in a pandemic. Okay. Yes. And so the effects, and I, and I, I want to know this, like doing all out the year, a drastic pain with the pandemic, with your clients, with your elite um, athletes. A drastic change in what way? Stress, you know, they're already focused on like, I have to win, I'm being competitive. Now they're truly isolated because I, I isolation because I spoke about that on a couple episodes about the isolation of different um, a, a sportsmanship. So did their behaviors change once they came back into you and, and spoke about what the issues were with their stressors high um, since, you know, they've been stuck in the house and kind of not out practicing their, you know, what they do. Right. right. Like, I can. I'm, I'm, I'm truly about that because it makes a difference in in your practice. You know, did they fall back a little bit? Like, okay, we were we were actually getting somewhere, but now having seen this client physically, because I know you've been doing probably virtually, but mm-hmm. there's always a physical aspect of things when seeing someone virtually. And so, did the behavior, did the stress, did it increase? I'm just really curious about that. Sure. Yeah. So, so to make sure I'm getting the question right, so kind of like increases in sort of stress and mental health concerns as the pandemic has gone on. Um, you know, and speaking to that again, both, you know, in some of, I, I see a lot of college athletes and younger athletes right now. That's kind of my main focus. And, and in that space, mm-hmm. Yes, we've definitely seen an increase in stress and mental health concerns for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and I think that lends itself as well. You know, I see some professional athletes and those going to the Olympics in my private practice. And, you know, the, the consistent aspect between both those levels of sport is in the beginning of the pandemic was everything being canceled. And, and that's really just unheard of like we've been on this pause of of no sports no competition you know athletes train because they love to compete most of the time and and they don't have that competition on the schedule to use as like that motivator and then all of the uncertainty that surrounded the pandemic certainly in the beginning of well when will we get back when will we be training when will we have competition are the Olympics going to happen that was a huge issue earlier and then for some athletes Um, when they found out the Olympics would be postponed, it was like, okay, great. I get another year to train. And for other athletes who are at a different point in their career, it was, oh my gosh, I have to train at this level for another year. How will I sustain this? So it brings different stressors that, that are there and then being isolated. You know, I had a professional athlete who was living in another part of the world aside from family and couldn't get back, you know, getting across borders and, and being able to train. So there wasn't the ability to leave the 
country to go home and visit family and then go back and train, you know, so they had to make a decision of pick one location during this pandemic to reside in and, and be in sort of this bubble. So I think that is challenging. And college athletes, we had all kinds of different things going on where, you know, athletes were sent home from school. They didn't have seasons to train for um, being at home with family for longer than what they're used to. So usually they go back for breaks and vacation and now they're living at home with many other people. Um, some have resources to do classes online. Some don't, you know, getting a, a private space, getting an internet connection, having the ability to be online all day was, was a challenge or now they're taking care of family. You know, maybe they have younger brothers and sisters or they have to work to help support the family because they don't have some of the same resources as when they were on campus and, and eating and living there. So that stress became like a whole new element to what our athletes were dealing with. Plus they didn't have the outlet that they're used to. They may have not had access to a gym. They may have not had access to people to train with. So they're trying to figure out, well, how am I supposed to train at all? And then the anxiety sets in of, am I going to be ready whenever we do go back? Um, will I be as fit because I haven't done this? Will I be as good and have the same skills? So all of that anxiety, I, you know, I just saw such an increase, um, you know, across so many levels and, and for so many reasons. And then the other part too, with the pandemic happening, that was a whole nother level of stress. You know, people lost loved ones. So dealing with grief and, and fear and, and illness, that became part of life that, you know, some of our athletes had never dealt with before. So I think with all of those challenges, this year has been particularly interesting, um, you know, for athletes, one, coping with what's going on in the world, and then how do I get back to my sport and do this again? So even as some of our athletes are now phasing back in, there's so much doubt and anxiety performance-wise of, I just don't feel fit. I haven't trained. Am I going to be able to do this? And so that was really causing, a, you know, not just stress, but that self-doubt leads to problems with confidence and self-esteem and feeling more depressed. And then on the other side of it is when all these athletes have had more time, even when they're back on campus, they're living in a bubble. So it doesn't look and feel like what they're used to on campus. They have nowhere to go out. They're really not supposed to hang out with friends um, other than teammates. Now they have all this time on their hands. They're doing classes online and maybe training with their team. What are they doing with the rest of their time? So we see increases in substance use and problems that trickle from that. And so, you know, that, that's not the case for every athlete, but there's some isolated incidents that because there's more time and, and more stress and, you know, peer pressure and all these things, it's sort of this um, perfect storm of elements that's, that's lending itself to, to more concerns. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Hopefully I, I kind of covered some of that. You answered, yes, you did. Thank you. So, so, so you talked a little bit about confidence and self-esteem, and I want to kind of move for a second to, I think, one of the issues that a lot of, I think, female athletes face, unfortunately, and that's sexual assault, sexual, you know, really people invading people's space, space in general. And I'm thinking a lot about, you know, Dr. Nasser and, of course, the U.S. gymnastics team and what's happened there. Uh, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of sexual assault and those kind of issues with some of the women that you're working with. Sure. You know, I, I don't see athletes wanting to talk about it a whole lot in like larger group settings, but when they're coming in, um, you know, they'll, they'll sometimes want to talk about what, you know, 
traumatic situation that maybe they experienced and, and they want help with that, or some are not sure, you know, it, they'll come in and, and maybe first feel hesitant and, and all these things are going on, sleep problems, anxiety, um, sort of the flashbacks and hypervigilance, but we're not sure where that's coming from. And then as we kind of build that rapport and that relationship and, and talk about well, what have been some other things, they're, they're hesitant to bring it up. Um, and, you know, once we get there, though, we're, we're able to then provide treatment. So if they are experiencing something like post-traumatic stress disorder related to that incidence coming in um, and getting that help, but that stigma and, you know, getting through the barrier of coming in for treatment is hard. And I think they're also worried about where this is going to go. Like, will, will this be confidential, right? Because when you go to some, uh, some settings, some providers or university or, or resources, they're mandated reporters and some are not, you know, so understanding that as a psychologist and a mental health provider that they are able, at least in DC, you know, to come and speak with me. And that is a confidential setting for them. Um, so that's, that's some of what I'm seeing now, um, that it does happen. We have a lot of good resources on campus to help with that. We have a team in, in our um, health education department at Georgetown who specializes in harassment and sexual assault and, and provides resources through there. Um, if athletes want to make a report, whether it's anonymous or not, they can talk with our Title IX coordinator. Um, our administrative team is very supportive. So the resources are there once an athlete is ready. And then all resources are really good about providing the mental health resources that you know an athlete can access as well. We try to make sure we cover a lot of bases that they're not comfortable coming to me in athletics and they want to work with the counseling center in general. We connect them there or we can connect them to someone off campus, trying to make sure that all options are available so that they get the support that they need. So I, I kind of want to go, because Dr. Rogers, um, I kind of talked about this in um, my case, you know, um, a little bit, probably a couple hours before we um, had to, to do this interview. And so the question, I started kind of reading about the case. And so Dr. Nizer, he, Nizer, he touched like 300 women. They came, like 300 women came forward in this case. And so the question, I, I really want to know, why does it take women, especially elite athletes, so long to come forward, to speak up? You know, you know, I was, I'm thinking 300, I'm thinking more than 300. So sure. why is it taking it so long to say, hey, this is what happened? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um, I think athletes are scared, you know, especially in, in this case with Dr. Nasser with USA Gymnastics, you know, so many of our gymnasts are so young. And they're used to being, um, you know, traveling and doing all these things. They, they develop such responsibility at a young age. And, and I think, you know, they're scared. They, they think they should trust this person. Um, and then at the end of the day, when something horrible like that happens, they're not even sure what to make of it. You know, was this wrong? What do I do about it? Will I be able to compete if I tell about this? So I think there's some misconceptions. And I know safe sport and, and, and administration, you know, is trying to do more to have practices in place to prevent incidents like this and do more education um, because, you know, that was a horrific case, you know, to learn that this happened to so many people um, and that nothing, you know, they're fearful of asking for help. So I think it's kind of worry, worry for retaliation, loss of competition, of feeling judged or feeling like they're almost made to feel like 
well, I did something. Did I do something wrong? And not sure what to do with that. You know, when I was reading this quote that um, that Bob said, it kind of it touched me. She said, because every time in America, an American wins the Olympics, you're like America's sweetheart. So it's like, how could this happen to America's sweetheart? That's how I felt, like I was letting other people down by this. So her speaking about how she felt to even come out, to even feel that way that if I come out to protect myself, and, and obviously she protected others, her feeling like she let people down because, you know, because the high, the, the high hierarchy that the, the Olympics it holds, you know, is there training that you guys do and talk to the young ladies that are dealing with sexual assault? Like step one, if you're if this is this way, or step two, like what do you what do you do? Because I can't say I can't speak on everybody because then I'll be putting everybody. Doctor Forrest, how do you talk to the young ladies about sexual assault? What? How do you guide them to even up? Sure. Yeah. So, so two parts to that. And before I answer, like, how do I talk to our young female athletes about that? It's also backing up of what are some of the trainings in place and education and that, you know, as a mental health provider, as a, as a medical professional, like we are expected to understand, you know, to understand, you know, how to help athletes and how to prevent these incidences being part of the USOC and, and on the registry as a psychologist that they refer their Olympic athletes to. And I think all providers to some degree have to go through safe sport training. And so they, they make sure that you're getting, you know, bystander training, recognizing harassment, sexual assault, what do you do? What is required? When do you report to safe sport? So just knowing as a provider, like, what am I required to do? What are the best practices? Um, that's a start, you know, and universities are doing this training as well. So our, all of our students at Georgetown get um, sexual assault bystander training, meaning like if this happens to a friend, what do you do? Or if this happens to you, what do you do? And then the same thing, you know, in my role is, is when I see athletes one-on-one -on -one, is guiding them through the options. You know, so, so I know that, you know, I'm a confidential resource to that athlete. They can talk to me about what's happened and then I can guide them on here are some options because even though they've gone through that training, they don't always remember all the details and they're, they're dealing with something so scary and, and, you know, stressful, just trying to figure out what to do next and what's okay and helping them talk through that. And if they're hesitant to reach out still, what are your options? What are the benefits and why, you know, what are your options and, and giving them the support that they need to make those choices and, and then empowering them that when they do want to like, okay, this is the step I want to take. Why is this important? And, and empowering them to feel like, okay, making that report might help other athletes or individuals. Um, and, and so trying to support them through that really difficult process. I was curious, kind of, kind of switching gears. Um, a lot of this really is kind of sexism that kind of leads on its ex extent if you follow it out to some of the things we're talking about. But I think on the front end, one of the things I was fascinated by this past year is with the D1 basketball tournament and the difference between the workout facilities for the female athletes and the male athletes. 
um, and the publicity it got. But I think had it not gotten that publicity, I'm not sure that anyone would have seen anything wrong with it um, on its surface. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the sexism and maybe the differences that you see in the way that male and female athletes are treated by the systems that are in place. Yeah, I mean, it's that was shocking, you know, just to see some of the resources and published in the media of, of really the drastic differences. And to me, what that emphasizes is that while we have a lot more women in sports today than we did 50 years ago, thank you, Title IX, um, we're a long way from gender equality, you know, getting better. You know, we see more athletes in sport. We see more high level female athletes. We see them getting more sponsorships and somewhat better pay, but we're nowhere near um, what our athletes in, in the male dominated sports are doing. Like, you know, working with the NBA and I know there's been a lot of advocating just for their salary differences, you know, and being able to be part of a professional organization um, and, and see what, wow, they have great resources and great things. You know, it's just not the same as what our male counterparts are receiving. And, and I think that speaks volumes. And so when we look at college sports, um, you know, I, I don't know that I feel like the differences I see just again, anecdotally looking at, you know, our athletes at Georgetown, we have lots of women athletes. I don't know what the numbers are. We have over 700 athletes in general. Um, and with the proportion of men to women, we're trying to be as even as possible. We certainly have many female athletes and, and they all have similar resources to a degree. So you see, um, you know, the gym and strength and conditioning and access to the training room is, is a little bit more equal. But again, you go to this tournament for our, our D1, you know, athletes and you don't see it. So, so I'm shocked that that happened. And, you know, it's, I really don't even know if I have words for that. Like, how does that happen <laughs> to be totally honest at that level? Right? It, it, it is a little unnerving, to say the least. It really is. And, and honestly, I don't even know if I should say this, but I'm going to. When they fixed it, it wasn't that much better. <laughs> That's true. In comparison, you know, so I feel for our athletes. And, and, you know, I know we've worked so hard for more equal treatment, um, but I think we have a lot more work to do. And, and thank goodness for some of our, our strong leaders um, that speak out for that. And, you know, at Georgetown, I feel like we, we do try to, to have equal resources for our student athletes of different genders of different, um, you know, diversity groups and, and our athletes who are marginalized groups, making sure those have resources. And we've spent the better part of this year trying to improve that and talk about that. Um, and I'm hoping that other schools are doing the same. Absolutely. So do you think, so do you think that in, um, the pay gap discourages women from going pro because obviously we saw the, the picture in the, the gym, the, the difference in inequality with the resources. So yeah. do you think that that discourages a woman to say, you know what, I'm just going to do college and I'm done. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't want this fighting anymore. So what are your thoughts on that? I'm just curious about that. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on the person. Um, I think knowing athletes, you know, when, when an athlete has it, you know, in their mind that they want to do this and they love it, I, I think it would be less common for them to say, you know what, I'm good at this and I can go pro, but they're not going to pay me enough, so I'm not going to do it. I think they want to do it anyway. They want to play. They want to play at that level. Um, 
you know, and for a lot of them, the pay is a bonus. It's exciting. But I think we have some great athletes, especially in the NBA, since this has been publicized over recent years that, you know, they are speaking out and, and we have some great, you know, athletes that are advocating for that. And so hopefully change will continue to come. Um, but as far as discouraging them, you know, I guess maybe it's possible um, but my hunch is it's less likely because I think at the end of the day, our female athletes are determined and they want to do their sport and they probably have the mentality, well, when I get there, I'm going to keep fighting for this. <laughs> you know, one, one of the things that I was actually thinking, I, I'm from South Carolina. I'm a university, I'm a university of South Carolina alum. And one of the things that we have is great women's basketball. Um, in fact, Women's basketball is probably more popular here than men's basketball, in all honesty. And I think a lot of it has to do with a couple of things. But the biggest one is probably the coach herself, Don Staley. And she has been this real advocate for, I think, women's sports in general, but I think especially basketball and is really kind of committed to increasing the profile. I'm wondering... As you kind of look around the country, you don't really see a lot of women's sports getting that level of attention. And I was wondering if you maybe could speak a little bit to what some of the factors may be. I know part of it's, you know, finances and those kinds of things, but I'm wondering maybe if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts on it. Yeah, sure. So as far as why some women's sports are continuing to not get the attention that the, our male dominant for, yeah, I mean, I think you kind of alluded to it already. You know, the, I think the, the financial aspect of it plays a big role. We're looking at the day which teams are going to bring in the most revenue. Um, and so when we look at that, it seems anyway that a lot of our sports that are the male sports are, are bringing in more revenue. So they end up getting more attention and more resources. Um, and then at schools like you're talking about where the women's basketball team, it may be more popular than even the men's. And is, is that because they're a better team? Are they bringing in more revenue? Like, and, and so I'm kind of curious from your perspective, just looking at like what happens there? Like, is that something that, that helps the women's teams is having that success or bringing in revenue that they get more attention. But that seems to be one of the bigger factors. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at our basketball team, women's basketball team, we've been in the Elite Eight pretty much every year in the Final Four the vast majority of years. So it's a it's a really good, exciting basketball team to watch yeah. um, in, in general. So I certainly think that drives a lot of it. But I think it also has probably allowed the coaching staff to be able to push the limits in ways they probably wouldn't have been able to with other sports as well, which I think has been, has been great. Yeah. Yeah. I would question too, like about alumni support, you know, so as certain programs maybe have certain alumni that really advocate or donate funds to them that might help that program grow. Cause you know, when you look at that, I think that could be a factor as well um, in terms of its popularity. And, and if that catches on getting a lot of great alumni is going to be a great way to promote a sport in general. Um, I have a question. So one of our listeners just um, um, kind of called in and she said, what role does the media play? Her name is Nicole Smith. And Nicole said, what does um, the media play in the disparity between the treatment of male and female athletes? And I picked this one out particularly because the media has a lot to do with the pay. 
the pay gap, the media has so much to do with it. You know, it's just kind of like, um, in my opinion, and I may be wrong, you can say, Naya, you're wrong, but I think the media makes it such a misogynist school, like, period. Like, women play like this, men play like this, women are pretty like this, well, men are strong and dominant like this. And I and I think the way that, that the uh, men and women are paid is because I'm just gonna be, I'm gonna be, that's how I feel. So when I saw this question, what role does the media play in the disparity between the treatment of male and female athletes? I'm like, I gotta ask Dr. Forrest. Dr. Forrest? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I think I agree. They play a large role. And the media is looking at, if you're thinking about television, airtime, um, getting it promoted in other formats. But again, who are they giving the time to on TV? You know, there are female sports on TV, but, you know, even even when I was working with uh, the WNBA, I know that they had gotten a contract with one of the TV organizations, but it, you know, it was kind of in the local area where it seems like the airtime is given to the male-dominated sports. And, and again, I don't know if it's because that costs more and, you know, men's sports have more money to put towards that or the media is making the decision that this is how much airtime like I don't know I think that's a great question but they have a lot of power they have a lot of power in the messages that are put out in the media so just like you know our female athletes certainly in the younger age groups going into college they get all this pressure about what a female in general should look like and so those societal ideals, the thin beauty, beauty ideal that's part of society right now comes from media, you know, whether it's social media and, and all of those things that athletes are, are on to connect with friends, um, magazines, TV, movies, all of it. You get these messages of what a woman should look like. That's the power of media. Um, so the same thing in terms of the pay option, you know, it seems like the media plays a big role in terms of what they're going to give attention to. Absolutely. And so if they're giving more attention to men's sports, um, that's a big factor. I'm kind of curious, and I would love to have your have your thoughts on this. I, I'm a child psychiatrist, and so I tend to work with a lot of young kids, often teenagers. And one of the things that I hear from a lot of young guys is, my goal is to be a pro basketball player. In, in fact, to the exclusion of anything else, my life is going to be to be a pro football player, basketball player. And as we're talking, I realized that I've never had that same experience from a young woman, Hmm. Um, which then led me to kind of start thinking, what must it be like when your dreams kind of end at a certain place? Because we're really talking about a huge glass ceiling that, that exists for female athletes. I know that once I get to college, I'm probably not going to do this sport beyond this place unless I make it to the Olympics or something. That's kind of the extent of it. Yeah. And I'm wondering what's the impact or what kind of experiences have you had with people that have kind of this terminal experience, even though they're really high level athletes? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're exactly right that for a female athlete, what do you do after college? You know, unless you're a basketball athlete, maybe soccer, what are you going on to do professionally? And, and there are ways to do that. And then looking at, okay, a national team or the Olympic route. Um, but some sports like gymnastics do that very early on. That's not really always after college. And, and for that sport, it's, you know, you're either going to go perform in college as a gymnast, or you're going to go the Olympic route first. Cause by the time they're, you know, getting to college graduation age, 2021, a lot of those athletes are retiring from gymnastics, not all, but 
but some. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so where is there for, for our female athletes to go? They don't really have many options for professional sport routes to do that full time. So then they look at, am I going to coach? What am I going to do? Um, so those options just aren't there as readily where, you know, for our male athletes, you know, between baseball, football, basketball, soccer, those, those sports are all like sort of an initial um, professional door that's open for them to pursue I think more readily and more accessibly than probably our female athletes. They, they just don't have as many options is what it seems like. Um, but it's interesting how you had that experience, just hearing it from your athletes. If I want to do this professionally and noticing that your female athletes really aren't saying that because, you know, they're, you know, our community doesn't offer those opportunities for them. And, you know, they can certainly go the route of the Olympic and national team, but they're not going to be looking at making a lot of money doing that. So what is your call for change for inequality for women in sports? Good question. (laughs) You know, I certainly think more opportunity, um, more opportunity, just as we were talking about. So kind of looking at professional teams and having uh, more equality in terms of salary and resources. And and we finally have a more well-established WNBA organization for our female athletes, Um, you know, making sure that they have more equal pay and opportunities, you know, I think is a place to start. Um, But also looking at, you know, in our college levels, like what can we do to make sure we have equal resources and equal opportunities. And I think Title IX has helped a ton with that um, in schools, you know, making sure we have an equal number of teams, male and female team, or yeah, male and female teams and resources being accessible to them. So, you know, continuing to, to work on that and continue to expand those opportunities. I'm, I'm curious as we're kind of get, getting close to the end, what are your, what are some of the resources that you might think of for either a professional like myself that may, you know, be working with, with female athletes or for parents and other community members who might be aware of issues, things that are going on. What are some of the resources that you would lead people to? Sure. You know, I I think some of the more powerful resources that seem to be helping some of our younger athletes is hearing the stories of athletes willing to speak about their challenges. Um, You know, so fortunately, social media has helped promote that. There's just recently, um, and this is on the male side again, but I'm trying to think off the top of my head of some of the female athletes that have spoken out. I know um, on the male side, one of the last week, you know, Dak Prescott with football really spoke out about mental health and, and, you know, talking about what he went through with his brother's suicide and, and during, because this is Mental Health Awareness Month, um, athletes from the NFL were sharing stories. And I know our athletes really relate to that, especially when they can see an athlete that looks more like them that they feel like they relate to. Um, and so for our female athletes, you know, we've, there's, um, you know, the Williams sisters, Serena Williams in particular, has been very outspoken um, in the basketball. You know, Elena Deladonna has spoken a lot about mental health. Jamaica um, Holtzclaw, you know, she's you know somewhat older athlete, but I still think that our athletes can relate to her story. So, athlete stories are a great resource um, to kind of just see that this is okay. Like, I can still be successful as an athlete, even if I have something going on on the mental health side, and, and I ask for help. So, I think the biggest thing we want to do is continue to. 
kind of reduce the myths about what it means to ask for help and kind of break down those barriers to help, again, increase mental health awareness and break down the stigma associated with seeking help that you know, I can still be a successful athlete even if I have a mental health concern or even if I work with a sports psychologist. And I always tell my athletes that you're going to have a bigger problem in playing well or, or getting playtime if you don't treat your mental health or take care of your well-being. Because if that happens, problems escalate and they domino and it becomes so problematic that you're not able to train. Um, if you get help, you're going to be more likely to play. So don't let that get in the way. And, and most coaches are, you know, more than happy in my experience for their athletes to get help because they know that it's more than just the physical training. You know, every athlete I know of, you know, I'm getting a little bit on a tangent here, but every athlete I know of, you know, will say, well, my sport's at least 50% mental. And, and I said, okay, well, if you're training 20 hours a week, how many hours of, of that week are you training your mental skills? And what are you doing to be mentally ready before each game? And they don't always have an answer for that. And so mental health becomes so important just in the performance side and then how you take care of yourself overall. Um, but those resources are one, stories for athletes to relate to. And kind of the more they can hear about it from relatable resources, the better, because then it's like, well, if it can happen to them, it can happen to me which is important for parents to understand because parents are always the first to say, oh, not my kid. You know, they don't need that or they don't need help. And so what kind of role model are they being? One, are they saying it's okay to ask for help? I think that's important because a parent and a coach are huge, especially in our adolescence world, that if they give signals that it's not okay to ask for help, then that adolescent will be less likely to ask for help. And I see that in college sometimes, but where, where athletes are finding their autonomy and they'll say, well, can I work with you? And we don't have to tell my parents <laughs> you're an adult, you know? And so they're kind of finding like, okay, I can ask for help and nobody has to know about that. And that makes it feel safer for them. So we can do stuff like that. Um, other resources, you know, looking at the different apps that are out there on mental skills, that's also relatable for kids and, you know, looking at, um, you know, like basic things, headspace, calm, you know, the mindfulness app. Those are all good resources to learn some basic skills. Um, and then looking at what's in the local area. You know, if you have a mental health professional who specializes in working with athletes, um, that could be a good resource for parents to consult with. So for some of my younger kids, I always ask to have parents as part of the, you know, certainly the intake appointment. Um, and on some cases with really young kids, you know, it's just the parents and they want to talk about, well, how can I foster my child's development in sport? And so being able to work with um, a sports psychologist like myself or, or someone that specializes in working with athletes, that can be a good resource too. Um, the Association for Applied Sports Psychology has, um, is the certification for, Kind of, it's kind of the gold standard that you know, mental health professionals can go through. Um, and they have a database of CMPCs that you can look in kind of the local area. And so many of us offer teletherapy that I could be a good person to consult with as a resource. Um, so those are off the top of my head. There's lots of books and articles online. You know, Google is a great tool or other web searches. <laughs> That's pretty good off the top of your head. <laughs> <laughs> Like wow, what I what I before we close out, and I did want to talk about this briefly. When I was researching looking for sports psychologists, it was very hard, extremely hard to find a sports a sports therapist, sports psychologist. Like it was almost like a unicorn. Mm, wow. 
I, I noticed that. Like, and I was so grateful when you said, oh, no problem. You know, you know, I, I'll be, it'll be great to, you know, speaker on your show. I'm beyond so grateful. But what I did notice, it was extremely hard. That was, it was really hard for me to find a sport. It was extremely hard. And I didn't, I didn't think it was going to be that hard. I, you know, I'm thinking, okay, football, basketball, you know, questions, all those kind of different sports. This would be simple. That was not the case. <laughs> so um, I want to say thank you for interviewing on the show before I um, close out. The Help Show wants to thank all of our partners, Auckland Research Associates, NJI Holding, Good Coworking, Gift in Mind Foundation, Duke's Hair Studios, and White Pearl Inc. We'd like to take a moment and thank everyone in our listening audience for listening today. We'd also like to remind everyone that we are a nonprofit organization operating entirely off the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to give to our organization, we appreciate you. You can send your donation via Cash App, Money Sign, The Help Show, or on our website at www.thehelpshow.org. There's no donation too small. Every dollar given will strengthen our efforts. If you'd like to donate $1,500 or more and become a VIP sponsor, then we have some additional packages listed on our website. And you can visit us at www.thehelpshow.org for more details.